2: And I'm intrigued to see how he gets out of this one.
0: Hello, and welcome to Still Watching, a weekly television podcast from Vanity
1: Fair. I'm Joy Press. And I'm Chris Murphy. We're here to discuss the ninth episode of the HBO series Succession, Church and State. Like a funeral truce. Yeah, like today is just about today.
0: And later on, Alan Ruck, who plays Connor Roy, will be stopping by to talk about Logan's funeral and what it's like to be the eldest brother in the Roy clan.
1: But first, a quick recap— The election results have caused unrest in America, but the Roy children have other concerns. Today is Logan's funeral. Here I am, talking loudly about my father. Don't I perhaps remind you of him just a little? Logan's brother makes an unexpected eulogy, and despite pre-grieving, Roman chokes. I can't do that. I can't. I tried to say... Kendall steps in and tries to fill the power vacuum left behind. That magnificent, awful force of him, but my God, I hope it's in me. Meanwhile, Shiv and Mattson try to win over Mencken and save the Gojo deal. Spitballing here, maybe an American CEO?
2: Would that help make things feel a bit more culturally aligned?
1: Kendall begins to worry he backed the wrong horse and could lose the company.
2: We don't want to say bye-bye to Waystar. We have to get fucking real and fight Shiv at the board.
1: Oh, and finally everyone finds out that Shiv's pregnant. Congratulations. Yeah, you're having a Walms gland. I thought you'd just been eating your feelings. <sighs> you know, I know Richard's away, you know, living his best Roy life in Cannes. And while we miss him, I'm so happy to be talking with Joy Press, my lovely colleague, about this catastrophic <laughs> episode of Succession.
0: I mean, if we can't be in Cannes, we might as well be here talking about Succession.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I, I got to know, what have you thought about this season as a whole. So I know we're, we're gearing up. for in the penultimate episode. Uh, how have you thought season four has gone, personally, and for the Roy clan?
0: Well, you know, we've all had guesses as to how the show would end. I mean, almost from the beginning of the show, we've been, like, betting on who was going to end up with Waystar Royco and who was going to win Daddy's love and all of that stuff.
1: Who's going to get the kiss from Daddy.
0: Yes. And it turns out no one gets a kiss from Daddy. Yeah. I actually thought in the funeral episode, we might have somebody like with an open casket and, you know, somebody might kind of dive in there and try to get that last kiss, but no.
1: Yeah. It looked like it was maybe going to be Roman, if anyone. Yeah. Roman seemed like he was ready to go down with the coffin. Oh, 100%. But yeah, I do think that's such a, a good point that, for seasons and seasons now, we've been wondering, like, who's going to get Daddy's love? And in the third episode of the season, we just ripped that away with Logan's death. And now we're finally, in episode nine, Church and State, we're finally at Logan's funeral, which we're finally at this point of closure. Um, and I think we have to sort of start and talk about the eulogies because we saw sort of three, I mean, if we're counting Roman, four attempts and three successful attempts at giving a eulogy for a man like Logan. How do you even begin to sort of sum up the life of Logan Roy?
0: I actually think that the eulogies were incredible yeah, and really give us a sense of what the show is really about, you know, because while we were all looking at it as a kind of race, you know, a competition, I think the show has much bigger (laughs) ideas at play. And, you know, when you see like Ewan, Logan's brother.
1: Yeah, we got to start with Ewan. He wasn't even supposed I to mean, speak. He wasn't even... He had. Greg had one job this episode from Roman. Do not <laughs> let Ewan get up there and speak. And lo and behold, Greg was unable to do that. And you weren't going to stop Logan's only brother from getting up there and memorializing him in a way that was truthful to him, but definitely kind of negative. Well,
0: it's very negative, but it's also like this incredibly poetic speech. Yeah. And it acknowledges all of these awful things, these very human things that shaped Logan, but also made him a monster.
1: Their boat sojourn during the war to get from Scotland to America. Three nights and two days, we stayed quiet. A four year old
2: and a five and a half year old speaking with our eyes.
1: You and speech. Really did sort of humanize him in a in a very real way, uncomfortably real way.
0: Isn't it incredible that on another show that would have been a whole episode? Yeah, just just that backstory, and they just you know just threw it in.
1: And we never and we never yeah we never see it with our eyes. We could only hear it through Ewan's perspective. And imagining Logan as a sickly child was very odd to me. I really didn't picture Logan as someone who was never not vibrant and full of life. And you Ewan telling the story about how he went off to school, he was sent off to school by his aunt and uncle, got sick, came back, and then he felt that he had given his little sister polio. That also was absolutely devastating and adds to the myth and the mythos of, like, why Logan was the way that he was. He's carrying that guilt, whether that's earned or unearned. That's with him all the time, in business, with his family. The idea that he's somehow responsible for the death of one of his siblings.
0: Yeah, and that was referenced, I think, earlier in the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many family secrets. And to just kind of say it out in the middle of this eulogy, I thought that was a, a pretty amazing speech.
1: I do think we should focus a little bit on the political aspect of U.N. and Logan's relationship, and the U.N., you know, giving away his money to Greenpeace and always sort of being this sort of anti-capitalist, balancing force to Logan's, you know, brazen billionaire. And how he, Logan left this earth with his only brother being disappointed in him. And I think we got to point out, like, the point in the speech where he said, I try. I try.
2: I don't know when, but sometime he decided not to try anymore. And it was a terrible shame.
1: Like, What do you think Ewan meant by that?
0: I took it as, you know, he stopped trying to be a good person. He stopped trying to care. And, you know, it's funny because Ewan is not a very likable character in the series. I mean, he's just a crank. (laughs) And yet, you know, the fact that he says, I tried, what you see is, you know, the best I can do was sort of very human. And I think as you said, like the contrast between Ewan's speech and then Kendall's speech. Yeah. You know, Kendall says you gotta we gotta give the other side. And Kendall gives an Equally epic eulogy, but it's like an ode to capitalism. It's like Ayn Rand could have written.
1: Oh my God. <laughs> his speech. Literally straight out of the fountainhead. It really is. It's kind of incredible, too. And it merely made me think I was like, oh wow, Kendall should have never been a businessman. Kendall was a born performer. He should have been an actor just like Jeremy Strong because he really does come alive. He really did come alive at a moment. Um when he had when he personally had to step up, you know, your own feelings about the Roys, I mean, Richard and I say this all the time. they're all terrible people, right? We understand that. But people are complicated. And I think Kendall's version of Logan that he sort of set or shared with the world in his impromptu eulogy made an argument that while Logan, yeah, was a miserly billionaire, he gave away a few millions, but not not enough of his billions, he also was a titanic presence and a titan of industry and a force to be reckoned with. And
2: yes, he had a terrible force to him and a fierce ambition that could push you to the side. But, but it was only that, that human thing the will to be and to be seen and to
1: do. And that's kind of undeniable. I think the beauty of this show is that with Ewan's eulogy and with Kendall's eulogy, it's hard to poke holes in their viewpoints of the same man, even though they're from totally different perspectives. And they fall on totally different sides of the spectrum in terms of you gotta love him. And he was a disappointment as a human being.
0: Well, and I think it also gives us so much insight into Kendall, because yeah. it it's like there's, throughout the series, you've had this sense that Kendall aspires to a certain kind of masculinity. He's trying to figure out how to be a man. Yeah. He's trying to figure out how to be the modern version of his dad, right? And he's basically at this point just sort of giving up. He's like, I'm just going to be my dad. And then Shiv comes on and sort of says like, well, <laughs> it's hard to be a woman in this world of this titanic these ideals of titanic sort of manliness, right? But it was hard to be his daughter. I can't not... You know, he was, it was... Oh, he was hard on women.
1: You know, he couldn't, he couldn't fit a whole woman in his head. And I think what she's saying about Logan could be sort of said about the business world, capitalism, you know, the world at large, that he couldn't hold a whole woman in his head. That was such a beautiful way of putting that sentiment in terms of he was, you know, he was hard on women and he couldn't fully comprehend all that a woman could be. And we saw that play out with his relationships, you know, with Marsha and Carrie and whatnot. And we see that playing out with Shiv right now, that everyone, she's not really taken completely seriously In the same way that her brothers are in terms of these business deals. So I thought that was just like a really beautiful way of underlying this thread that has been sort of running uh, the entire season. And, I mean, Sarah Snook is just—I mean, they were all so fantastic, but, you know, Sarah Snook— really They were incredible. Whatever.
0: But if, but the, And then they sort of underline it in this episode by having all the ex-wives and—
1: Carrie sitting front row at the—if you had told me four episodes ago or five episodes ago when Carrie gets ushered out of Marsha's apartment, taking the taxi to the subway, that she would be sitting in the front row next to Marsha and Caroline Collingford— I would have said you were crazy. I would have said you were absolutely crazy.
0: Right. And for Caroline to be the one who says, you know, it's just water under the bridge. We're, you know, ins- I, basically, instead of Logan you know, turning us against each other, pitting us against each other, now we can all just sit together and laugh about him.
1: Well, it seems like in the absence of this man who could not hold the idea of a whole woman, the women are finally able to sort of come together, even if it was totally a power play on Caroline's part, to be like, hey, Marsha, like— You think you're so special because you were the last wife? Well, you know, I'm going to get your mistress and I'm going to bring my mistress. We're not that different, you and I, (laughs) even if you think that you might have won. And somehow, while it starts off as sort of a power play, it seems like it becomes, at least between Marsha and Carrie, it seems to be a moment of genuine connection where Marsha sort of remembers that line about grinding his teeth at night. That's something that they all, all four of those women know because they all shared a bed with Logan because they all loved him in some way. And that was a really morbidly unifying moment,
0: and they all were betrayed by him in some oh. way. I mean, except maybe Carrie. But, you know, he was basically <laughs> shunting her off the air of atN,
1: oh, yeah, no, she was betrayed,
0: <laughs> so he he managed to figure out how to screw her up right before he uh, went into the to
1: the grave. I do want to go back to the eulogies, or specifically Kendall's eulogy. I think the part that really stuck out to me is when Kendall said he was comfortable with this world, and he knew it and he liked it. Which, to me, might be the whole... Richard and I have been looking for places where the show sort of shows its cards of what are its true morals, its true politics, right? And I think that might be an instance of that where Kendall's saying that Logan was comfortable with the world and he knew it and he liked it. That's sort of a compliment, but, like, maybe I'm a a little too emotional, but isn't the world kind of bad? Isn't the world shitty? Shouldn't we want to make the world a better place and not be comfortable with the world? I mean, in the world of the show the world is burning, right, because of decisions that the Roy children have made in terms of calling it for Jared Minkin on ATN way too early. I don't know. How did you feel about that line?
0: You know, I thought about it differently. I guess I responded to that kind of emotionally. Mm. Because it seems to me, certainly Kendall and Roman don't feel at home in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's very clear. The brilliant acting of Jeremy Strong and... Kieran Culkin, I mean, it's so clear at every moment that they're on screen, that they do not feel comfortable in their bodies, they do not feel comfortable in who they are. And so for me, there was a little bit of that emotional element. But there's also that sense that, you know, the Roy's, and I think you've talked about this on the podcast before, I I think the Roy's um, don't see other people as real, and they feel like they can bend
1: the world to their desires. I totally agree in terms of I think last episode, episode eight with the election, that was very much letting the outside world into their world. Right. And we see how the Roy's actions, for better, or for worse, often for worse, have a direct effect on the outside world. And again, with this episode, with the funeral, we sort of shove the outside world out as much as we can. And we bring it back internally into the family where you're totally right Roman and Kendall, and I will say, even Shiv, they don't really seem to feel at home and comfortable in the world. And whose fault is that? I think it has to be Logan's fault, ultimately, right? Yeah. I mean, clearly,
0: Shiv sort of talks a little bit about their experience as children
1: in her eulogy. Playing outside his door.
0: Yeah. Well, and she talks about it again when she's joking with her mother about how she's going to have children and she's just never going to see them. Yeah. It's a very old-fashioned patrician, you know, very upper class idea of, you know, you get raised by nannies and your parents come in and visit you and you don't really know them and you get sent to boarding school and but I do think, you know, having gotten to know both of those parents, you can see why they might be not at home in the world. You can. You know, Caroline is not is not a warm mother. And Logan certainly was just manipulating them. You know, he gave them affection when he needed something or when he wanted to manipulate them. And so they've been mind boggled since they were very small children.
1: Yes. And some of them still even act like small children, which I think brings us to Roman's attempt at a eulogy, which was, I mean, Kieran Culkin coming for that Emmy. He just entered. He just planted his flag. Lead actor Emmy. I'm going for it. And I think that brings us back to the beginning of the episode where we see him trying to emulate his dad. He's doing his, like, hot shot thing in the mirror, talking his bullshit, being like, you know, I'm the king of the castle, I, you know. And then when it comes down, when he has to sort of be his father, which he wants to be, he breaks down. He cannot do it. He is a blubbering mess, which funerals obviously are very emotional. I recently went to a funeral. It's an emotional experience, obviously. It's overwhelming. And of all the children... Roman was clearly the most um, emotionally destroyed to the point where he was not able to even for one second get through his planned eulogy and prove to everyone there, which he wanted to prove, that he was the son of Logan Roy and was as strong and as brash and as much of a bull and a titan as his father.
0: Well, I think about that scene that you mentioned where he's practicing, you know, talking into the mirror. And I don't know if you remember that old SNL sketch that Al Franken used to do, Stuart Smalley's (laughs) affirmations. You know, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and God darn, people like me. (laughs) I feel like he was trying to convince himself that he could be a Logan replacement. And he gets there and he sees the coffin. (laughs) Is he he in there? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He realizes, like, he can't replace this man. This man is who's completely controlled his life is gone. And, you know, I think Kendall says later on is taunting him and just says, like, you fucked it.
1: You fucked it. He says point blank, you fucked it. And while that is maybe not the nicest thing that Kendall has ever said to Roman and maybe not appropriate, uh, there was a sort of truth to that.
0: Well, he did. I mean, he could not... They've all been scheming to be the top dog. There was that Mm. brief moment at the beginning of the season where it seemed like the three of them were united. They were going to
1: do this together. Oof, that's gone now. And
0: ever since then, they've been scheming because they don't trust each other. And I think Roman thinks this funeral is going to be his statesman moment where he's basically going to become king. And instead, Kendall's the one who is standing there greeting Mencken and acting statesman-like at the end. Yeah. And Roman is just, he can't do it. You know, it's like the it's like the shooting off of the rocket again.
1: <laughs> he, uh, yeah. he can't do it. Oh my God, that storyline. And I think it's like, I feel sort of silly. You know, when we think about the show, we think about who is like the star of the show, really. And we take ourselves out of the narrative. It was always Brian Cox and Jeremy Strong. So it does make sense that Kendall would emerge as sort of the heir apparent, because that was always... That's the overarching narrative. But I think it's a testament to how well the writers and the show have weaved in Shiv's storyline and Roman's storyline that really, at any point, it felt like any of them could sort of be the next Logan Roy. But it felt pretty undeniable that Kendall, in stepping in for Roman, kind of knocking his eulogy out of the park, he seems to be the heir apparent. And he seems to, for better or for worse, and I think we have to talk about Kendall's wife and the Rava situation and Kendall at the beginning of the episode, things are falling apart for Kendall personally, but he does sort of prove that he might be, if not Logan, because he'll never be Logan, no one will ever be Logan. I think that's the point of the show. He's the next in line to the throne.
0: Except, you know, the way that things work in this show, there's never a direct one, two, three, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Shiv is still very much in the mix, And I don't know that you can count Roman out because he's such a malign figure. I mean, the kind of jokes that he was making in this
1: episode. (laughs) To Shiv, to his sister, the incest jokes in the car on the way to the funeral. What other show could get away with that? It was was wild. (laughs) It's just
0: reminding us that, and I think the election episode reminded us, that Roman really, of the three children, has the least moral compass. I mean, his moral compass is just going round and round.
1: (laughs) Out of whack. It's just not, there's no direction there. And it really, it's so wild because, yeah, the election, it seems like he ends up on top. He's the most powerful. And then in one episode, he's a, a blubbering mess at the bottom of the totem pole, which is that the show is able to just take us on such big roller coaster rides with each of these characters in such a short period of time. But you're totally right about Roman's moral compass. It's like... Not to be found. He's like a proud boy. But beneath the proud boy, he's like a blubbering little sad boy. Really?
0: <laughs> yes. Roman the sad boy. I mean, I think the, the horror of the show, though, is that if you get too comfortable with the idea that oh, Shiv is really has a moral compass, has a, a sense, is behind the the right people, she's always willing to sell them out for the right price. Yeah. As she shows in this. She is completely willing to shake hands with Mencken, even though— She knows in her heart that this is a horrific thing for democracy. I mean, she knows exactly what the price is. And Kendall, too. I mean, as you said, he has this moment. Rava is saying, this is going to destroy your child.
1: This is destroying your child.
0: You know, and your child, the world of your children. You're helping flush it down the toilet. He feels it. He has a moment. And then he just is enraged at this idea and, you know, that it's going to interfere with, yeah. with his, what he wants.
1: And then he, you know, for all of his, like, grandeur at the, during the eulogy and sort of selling it, he gets the applause and whatnot. He acts like a literal child. I'm
2: going to block your car. I'm going to lie in front of your fucking car. Okay, you're going to have to run me over if you want to go.
1: The divorced energy is so scary from Kendall. He was spiraling out of control, throwing a temper tantrum, and he does it with Rava, and then he does sort of the same thing. I think it's a great time to bring up Jess Jordan, his lovely assistant who's been with him through thick and through thin, she has a moral compass. If there's somebody who has a moral compass in this show, she sees the direction that things are going with Mencken, and she says, I wipe my hands of this. I want out. I'm going to set up a meeting on your Google Calendar, and I'm going to peace out, And Kendall demands that they have the conversation on the day of the funeral, which she's like, I don't want to do this. And then yells at her for bringing it up on the day of the funeral, even though that's what he asked for, which is so classic Kendall logic.
0: Well, it's interesting that she's the one person in the show who is willing to leave or who sees, you know, this is not good for me. This is not good for my career. I don't want to, I don't, you know, this is not good for the world. I don't want to be a part of this anymore, whereas... I mean, you've got Tom on the other hand, who's like, make sure I get credit. If I'm going to if I'm going to be tarred with this Mencken brush, like at least let me get full credit for having brought down civilization.
1: He wants the newspapers to sort of not pay attention to him, but he wants Mencken to know that he did it because he wants his cake and he wants to eat it too. And so does Greg. Greg, uh, operator Greg, uh, maybe he will inherit the whole entire thing. I don't really believe that's what's going to happen. We'll get to like who's going to, you know, the final theories at the end of the episode. But Greg really wants some face time with the potential president-elect.
0: I know. I, I That scene where everyone at the reception is interrupting everyone else to get to, you know, and Greg's like, I mean, Greg's just trying to get to him to tell him how great Tom is. Yeah. <laughs> Greg's just delivering Tom's message. But everybody is like literally climbing over each other to get to and to, uh, you know, debase themselves.
1: And you know who? I think that this brings us back to Shiv, and Shiv's. she seems to be the moral compass. She says it would be the end of the world if Megan got elected, and then there she is swooping in to save him from that sort of swarm of people so that she can have her own one-on-one with him and Matson as her attempt to take power and take the throne. Shiv... Is Shiv as morally corrupt? Is it worse? Or is she worse than her brothers because she knows deep in her heart what she's doing is wrong. And yet, she says. Oh, what? Kinder Kuka Kerche over here? I thought you hated me.
2: My dad was flexible. I'm flexible. I know how things go.
0: I mean, I always think that trying to go-girl Shiv
1: is a is a mistake. <laughs> and I love to go-girl Shiv. So
0: <laughs> I know. But, you know, we learned very early that she's willing to do anything. I mean, she was all high and mighty and righteous and then was perfectly happy to exploit the cruise ship victims in order to get her dad's affection. And so she's not lying when she says she's as flexible as her dad. I mean, she understands ultimately. I think she does what she needs to do to get ahead in the world. I think being, you know, more left wing was useful to her. It was a yeah. way to define herself Against the family, I think everything she does is tactical. I think she maybe has real beliefs, but she also knows that she has to trash them when it gets down to it,
1: yeah. And her still linking up with Matson, who still has emerged, though I will say in this episode, I, and I think it's such a great device that the show have brought in Mattson as the sort of outside-of-the-U.S. foreigner who can look inward and sort of tell us truths about America that we might not want to hear, even though he's obviously terrible in his own ways and is corrupt. I thought what he said about American democracy was so funny and so great. You've only been a democracy for 50 years. That is, if you you know don't count black people, right? It's like, which you have a habit of not counting them, America. That is such an outsider take that is so true and so so relevant right now that— You could never get from any of the Americans or anybody on the show. And yet, while he's able to have these sort of moments of critiquing the system from the outside, he is just as bad as Kendall and Roman, it seems, and is willing to make deals with Mencken in order to get— the Gojo deal to go through. And it looks like, and I did say this, I'm going to actually gas myself up. I'm going to go girl myself from last week. I said, why should we trust Mencken? Like, Mencken says that he's going to block the deal. And Roman just seems that, you know, just because he said he's going to block the deal, he's going to block the deal. But by the end of the episode, doesn't look like Mencken's going to block the deal. If we look at that phone call between Madsen and Shiv.
0: Yes, again, Roman fucked it. (laughs) But, you know, I I think, you know... it goes back to this idea. of He's another kind of bro, right? He's a. Anu- yeah. It's another kind of masculinity. It's like a more modern version of Logan's desire to eat the world, right? To, to own it and to profit off of it. And it's interesting, you know, that Shiv is willing to attach herself to him. She says people will just think that I'm a. I'm your puppet. Mm-hmm. And she's fine with that. She's fine with convincing him to make her the CEO and let people think that
1: she's his puppet, yeah, because she'll be the CEO and she'll have power, even if it's only in name only. I mean, I think bring up Matson and and have the broaddiness of by the end of the episode, it very much looks like Matson and Mencken have created a bond, and that Matson might be in like Flynn. <laughs>
0: Yes, I, I mean, I think there's a good chance of that. I do think that that is very much in the in the spirit of the uh, succession writers' room.
1: I will say for Shiv, and I do think we touched upon Shiv and the misogyny and her pregnancy before, but Matt, it, it rears its head again with the show not being able to hold a whole woman, where Shiv's like, "Yeah, I'll be the." CEO, you know, I'll be the American CEO, and then he does that little pregnancy. He's like, oh, but, and that becomes sort of a sticking point, and that might be the thing that actually keeps her out of a position of power at Waystar Royco, which I thought was really, really uh, compelling, sort of crazy,
0: and of course illegal.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's, and that should be said, also, you know, not
0: that that matters in the world of of succession. I mean, no.
1: No, but it must be said. And also, I do think... So we have Mattson, who's like, I don't know if we're going to make you the CEO because of um, your pregnancy. And then Mencken, who, like, Justin Kirk, is so great at this role because he's smooth. He's, you know, kind of an operator. He seems kind of smart. But he's a white nationalist, misogynist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, absolute pig. And he says to... Shiv, to her face, he says Küche Kirche, which in German, it's a German slogan, and it's translated as Children Kitchen Church, which is sort of like the German version of um, Barefoot in the Kitchen and where he believes a woman's place should be. So when she's saying that she would, you know, maybe be the CEO, he's obviously not for that because he thinks women belong in the hearth and the home.
0: Yeah, I mean it's masculine horror all the way through. Because of course, yeah. also we haven't talked about the fact that Matson has Ebba. His,
1: <laughs> but Ebba seems to be talking to Hugo a lot.
0: Yeah, but you know, Matt. I mean, Matson has perpetrated some very illegal and problematic things with Ebba.
1: Blood bricks sent to her house.
0: Cannot think of anything more horrible to open <laughs> your door and find. Yeah,
1: no, sitting literally. on your
0: doorstep than um, Matson's um, blood, but. But yes, and I think you're right. Hugo, Hugo is willing to... Woof like a dog for Kendall. (laughs) That was one of the great lines, I think.
2: But the scraps from the table will be millions. Millions. Happy? Woof. Woof.
1: Woof. Each sibling... Seems to be sort of amassing their army for the final episode, which the final episode which we will get to in terms of what we think is going to happen. It seems like Shiv's army is Lucas, where well, she's got Lucas. Right, that's her army. Kendall has Hugo and Roman. Who's on Roman's team? He's not. He doesn't have Jerry. Doesn't seem like he has Minkin anymore. Is Roman? And given the very end of the episode with him getting trampled by the protests that are happening right outside of ATN because of the call Roman led. Roman seems to be alone going into this big fight.
0: He does. I will say, as a little bit of a perverse Roman Jerry stan, (laughs) I did notice a little flicker of what seemed like sympathy in Jerry's eyes. So you never know. And I do feel like in succession, you know, when when you think somebody is out, when you count somebody out, I mean, you think about some of Kendall's lowest moments and then he bounces back. So... I would not assume that Roman being trampled necessarily means that he's completely down for the count. Like, he literally is down for the count, but, you know, he might pop back up.
1: Yeah, he really might pop back up. Still watching, we'll be back in just a moment. And when we return, a conversation with Alan Ruck and theories on how it will all end. The Run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran um, who should be the mayor of New York.
0: We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Very nice. Nikki? Yes? It's
2: been really great Cheer being in this beautiful pink room.
1: All right, Asha, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOC.
0: Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um A-W-O-K and a
1: winter okay. I'm Cho Minardi and I'm Chloe Mel, And we're the hosts of the run through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us, it's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and one percent on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit appleco calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This season on Succession,
0: we've watched Connor Roy get married, run for president, and bury his father.
1: Actor Alan Ruck's portrayal of the eldest Roy sibling has been one of our favorite storylines to talk about on the podcast. And we caught up with Alan to talk about love and life and death in the Succession universe. Here's our conversation. Hello. Wow, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. I I have to imagine... You know, filming a, a funeral episode has to be a really emotional experience. And then on top of that, filming a funeral episode at the end of a series has to sort of crank up the emotion even more. So can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to film Logan's funeral?
2: Sure. Um you know, I mean, a great deal of pomp and pageantry and all that kind of thing. We had so many extras and, uh, they were all wonderful because it's, it's hard to wrangle people like that, you know, and uh, get everybody to be quiet. And, uh, just the mechanics of it went, went very well (laughs) during that time. You know, nobody knew that Logan was going to die in the third episode. And so there were some people that were saying, well, Brian hasn't been around. We haven't seen up like people in the media. Brian doesn't seem to have been around or he was in, he was just in Australia promoting his book, you know? And um, so we had him visit the set one day, you know, and he came in in his, you know, baseball cap and his fancy jacket. And he kind of hung out with us for a while just to keep the ruse alive. Um, Yeah, it was emotional. I mean, a little bit, the whole season has been like that. And I, I know it was uh, firmly in our minds that this is the second to the last episode ever, but um, I don't remember anyone becoming overly emotional during that time, except when we did the read through for episode 10 for the first two seasons, we'd always done our read-throughs together, you know, in a big room, bunch of people together. And then when COVID hit, like everybody else, we had to do Zoom virtual, right? But this time we did it in person again. And it's a lovely experience because you get to feel everyone's energy and the read that always goes better. People don't take as big a pauses, they're less indulgent, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And then at the end of that, Snooky Sarah burst into tears she, she just became overwhelmed that that was it. But that was during that period of, of filming that uh, funeral. But that's the only time I remember seeing somebody get just getting overwhelmed with the fact that we were soon to be done.
0: Can you tell me if you uh, got a sneak peek at Connor's alternative eulogy?
2: Um, yeah. I mean, uh, I, as I recall, it was just... Um, Talking about sort of everything but Logan Roy, you know, just talking about like the state of the world, a lot of feeling sorry for himself Connors, uh, eulogy for Logan.
0: So you didn't you didn't get to to actually perform the eulogy?
2: No, I mean, there are things that we filmed that uh, didn't make it into the final cut. There was this whole big thing where I wanted to do that eulogy, my own eulogy, and they were like, no, 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 let's cut it down, let's cut it down. And then... um, they decided to substitute me for Frank because Frank was going to say a few words. He was going to read a passage from the Bible. And so, (laughs) I mean, uh, uh, Siobhan just turns around to Frank. She goes, you're out. Connor's in. (laughs) And, uh, And then I went up and I read, you know, just pretty straightforward this passage from the Bible. Another scene that didn't make it in that I was really, you know, I understand it's just a matter of time. There's only so many uh, minutes allotted to our show even sometimes they give us a few extra but there was a scene where I go back to the apartment to the the apartment I just bought from Marsha. and I'm just uh, going over a few last minute things and I call up my siblings and I, I say you better watch it because there's Antifa and protests and different things on the street and the reason I missed that is our uh, one of our wonderful cinematographers Pat Capone He said, you know that feeling you get when you go into a house where somebody has recently died and there's just something's missing. It just, it feels incredibly empty. And it was just me in that big apartment. And with the lighting, he did just amazing things. And it just gave you that, a very somber feeling. So I don't know, maybe somebody has it on a spoof reel somewhere. We can, something else we can sell the great outtakes (laughs) of Succession.
1: I will say Connor, it seemed like for the whole season, Connor's been the most hands on in terms of planning the funeral, but then had sort of the smallest role at the actual funeral, which is very, you know, Connor Roy, sort of his lot in life. Yes. Um, (laughs) When we get to the mausoleum, Connor sort of calls Top Bunk in the tomb with Logan. Do you think he wants to be, you know, with his dad forever and ever into eternity?
2: I mean, on some level, I would say, yes, I would say, I would say, you know, just Connor would feel like that was the last laugh. Like I I was uh, an embarrassment in life, but I'm with you for eternity.
0: The best revenge.
2: (laughs) That's it. Try to get rid of me now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How would you rate the Roy kids on a, on a scale of most to least evil? (laughs) Where does Connor fit in there?
2: Well, first you have to define evil. You know, uh, and just like, you have to define stupid because everybody's old Connor's stupid is like, really, let's talk about some of the stuff Kendall did, <laughs> yes. you know, I mean, it's, it's, I guess, uh, it depends on context. I don't know if it's evil, but I would say that I think Siobhan is the coldest. I think she's the most like Logan. And, you know, if there was a business deal that she wanted and somehow you were going to suffer, you were her friend, and you were going to be diminished or slighted in some way because of the deal, she'd do it anyway. And she'd say, "Ah, oh, you know, we're still friends. You know, it's just business. Very much the gangster mentality. She tries to keep herself invulnerable. It didn't work out in um, episode eight, where she got caught mm-hmm. out in that lie. We had never seen her. I don't think we had ever seen her caught out, trapped and miserably uncomfortable and trying to cover and like trying to tap dance as fast as she could to get out of an unpleasant situation. Cause she never allows that to happen to herself. You Mm. know, she does not allow herself to be vulnerable even with Tom, you know, in those moments where he's like, let me show you a little kindness. And she has to say something snarky to put him in his place. And you were never anything more than just my boy toy or whatever she says to him, you know, cause she can't, she has armor and nothing is supposed to hit through you know so i don't know about evil but i would say that she's the toughest nut
1: i don't think connor is connor can't be you know so stupid because he's got willa by his side an amazing potential first lady
2: yeah he's he's damaged he is really messed up they all are he's you know he we've talked about this before that he has delusional disorder which is a real thing and um mm. probably somewhere on the spectrum Brian Cox and I talked about that early on, just trying to figure out what his different maladies were. <laughs> and Brian's like, oh, he's on the spectrum. Oh yeah, somewhere. <laughs> yeah, And um, he's got ADHD, of, is some form of that that was never properly diagnosed or addressed. But he does read. I mean, he reads stuff that's a couple hundred years old, but um, he, he does read and he's just not able to put the pieces together. He's not able to sort of apply whatever knowledge he's gathered to his life in. <laughs> and, but he's never had to because there's, there's never been a need to go get money, make money, do anything. But I just think that's, that added to Connor's loneliness. I think he's a very lonely little boy with a sick mother and an absentee father and a half siblings for, for whom he's a verbal punching bag. Uh, so I just think he's been a lonely guy. And now at this stage in his life, he realizes I've never done anything, and nobody needs me to be anywhere. Nobody says, "Wait till Connor gets here; we can start." So I do think he's feeling that, but he does have Willa, thank God. Otherwise, it would be the dreariest story ever told.
0: <laughs> she really, um, she really stands up for him. She supports his electoral run. She doesn't want him to to back out of the campaign at the last moment. Do, do you think she? She is with him in his delusional state, or does she just understand that he needs somebody? He needs one person to be behind him.
2: I think she too is delusional. I mean, you know, beautiful woman, and no dummy, really street smart, right? But probably not a very good playwright. (laughs) Probably not, you know? But she's pursuing this dream. It's, It's her dream, and now she's found somebody that can support her in that. So she probably doesn't view it as being delusional. It's just her quest to become a successful playwright. And so I think she, at this point, she's like, Connor needs what he needs. And I need what I need. And we respect that, you know, about each other.
1: You both are really, uh, you make a wonderful couple and really have emerged as sort of the, <laughs> the heart of this of the season.
2: Well, I, um, Jesse and uh, the writers gave me more to do this year. And I'm, I'm really grateful, because it's so much fun. The writing is so good, and it's just so fun to play and to be in the, the, the midst of it, in the thick of it, which is actually a callback to something Jesse did. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful about everything that happened this season. I'm grateful for this show. This was uh, just exactly what I needed at this point in my life, and, um, and it's all because of uh, Jesse Armstrong
0: now that the show's, you know, coming to a close, do you have a favorite moment or or a memory of filming from this season or from just from the whole series?
2: I got to tell you, in episode three, when we were on that marriage boat, and we had filmed everything in great detail about, you know, getting the news uh, about Logan and everything, then we decided to do it Mark Mylod says it was Kieran Culkin's idea, and Kieran says it was Mylod's idea. So we did, we'll never know. That we did, I think it was a 26 minute take. Cause we set everything up like a play and the cameras had backups. So when one guy was about ready to run out of film, the next guy would jump in and there's a little bit of an overlap. So we had sort of a continuous take. We did a continuous run of an enormous chunk of that episode. And fabulous crew. It was thrilling. I mean, it was really thrilling because we'd have like Christo Morris, our first AD, say, wait here. It was like we're in the army or something. He's like, wait here. It's not safe. It's not safe. Okay. Okay. Go, go, go. You know, and when we finished, when uh, I guess my lad said and cut, the whole crew erupted in like joyful laughter, just an applause because we did that thing. We did that hard thing together and we were up to it, you know. And that was that's that's probably my favorite moment.
1: I do want to know, because we here at Still Watching, we thought Connor really might end up being president. We really we really thought you were maybe gonna go all the way. Where are the conheads now? Are they protesting outside ATN? Are they on the Mencken side? Like I
2: think a lot of them are in the bar <laughs> and, and will stay there probably for a while. Um it's just a bunch of disillusioned people, but it's, it's something like, you know, my 1%, that's kind of like a million people. It's not nothing, <laughs> you know, but, uh, all different kinds of dis- disillusioned people. So there's some people that'll, you know, turn left or turn right, depending on their situation, I suppose. But, um, they're, they're moping, they're pouting.
0: Um, are you, um, I, obviously you've spent uh, four seasons um, together uh, with the, the cast and crew. Do you guys have like a WhatsApp group? Or are you going to keep in touch with, uh, with, with your uh, fellow Roy's?
2: There is a thread. We chat with each other quite a lot. We don't have a WhatsApp group, but uh, we, do, uh, we do text each other a lot. Somebody had gone to see uh, Arian Moyed in uh, A Doll's House on Broadway. And he's nominated for a Tony, right? I mean, so somebody just said he's fabulous. And everybody's like, well, of course he is. He's our guy. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, so um, a lot of little stuff like that, just little bits of life, which is nice. You know, this has happened a couple of times to me in my life. And the first time was on uh, Spin City. And I did that. I did that series for six years and many more episodes because it was a sitcom. But I made friends for life on that. And uh, it's the same thing with this show. It's just, uh, we went through something wonderful together and uh, we saw everybody do their best work. And it's just something to marvel at. And um, so I'll, I'll be friends with these people for the rest of my life too, I will.
0: Still watching, we'll be back in just a moment. And when we return, we'll talk about your thoughts And finally, uh, this is the part of the show where we want to hear from you. Chris, what's in the inbox this week?
1: All right. Thank you for emailing in your thoughts and feelings on Succession this week. We got a great email from Elliot on Greg, all right? So Elliot wrote in, Somehow, Greg always has access to valuable information and isn't afraid to use it to his advantage. In season one alone, he's the one who tells Jerry Tom is thinking about holding a press conference about the cruise line scandals. He's the one who finds out about the no-confidence vote from Ewan. He's the one who didn't burn the cruise ship papers and shared them with Kendall. Having Greg end up on top would be both comedic and cynical, true to the show's tone. And it would be both surprising and inevitable, as all good endings are. All right. What do you think? Do you think Greg's going to end up on top, Joy? It seems
0: unlikely, But it definitely seems that Greg is determined to end up with whoever is on top.
1: Yeah, he has no real allegiance to anyone. I mean, I guess Tom most likely, right? Tom's probably the closest, his closest ally. Of course, Tom is his closest ally. But Tom doesn't really seem to be in a position of power right now. Tom might be going down with the ATN ship. So... The way that Greg was angling, he was angling. He, and also, he just took Tom's spot on the casket, right? Rolling in the casket. He's not afraid to <laughs> step in and take what is uh, his or what might not be his. So, while I do think it would be a little Game of thrones to end with skinny, weak boy <laughs> taking the throne, I, I do think we can't underestimate the impact that Greg can have. Because Greg, I mean, even with last episode and the Election had Greg not thrown Shiv under the bus, you know, it might be Jimenez as the president elect, right?
0: He's had a huge influence. He's really, really, um, through ev- you know, in every season, I think you could trace little things that Greg has done that have really shifted the narrative.
1: I wouldn't count him out just yet. Um, okay, we also got another email, sort of Kevin from the Upper East Side about what he thinks the final shot of the entire series will be, which which will be happening next week, which is sort of crazy to believe. Okay, so Kevin wrote, The first episode, Celebration, includes the scene following Logan's birthday of all the Roy's helicoptering into a baseball field for what starts as a family game but soon turns dark when they bring out a neighborhood kid and offer him and his family life-changing money if he scores a run after signing an NDA. Roman alludes to the fact that bringing an underprivileged kid out into their game is the actual meaning of the entire game, and Roman seems to be the only one empathizing with the kid and his parents. The kid loses, the helicopter out, and the family returns to their small apartment with the watch Tom meticulously picked out for Logan. Regardless of any of the Roy kids winning or losing in the finale, the end shot should, Kevin believes, be following Logan's funeral, the Roy kids helicopter out, they will never be so poor that they don't have helicopters. And they return to the baseball field, and it ends with Roman calling over a kid, asking him if he wants to change his life as he throws him a ball. Wow, that's very uh, cinematic in scope and very specific, Kevin. Thank you for that email. I guess we know that it definitely doesn't end with, uh, right after Logan's funeral, as we had Logan's funeral this episode. But do you think that it might be that full circle? How do you think the series will end next week?
0: Well, I think that that's a very cinematic idea. I think it maybe belongs to another show, a very heartfelt show.
1: (laughs) Yeah, something a little bit more sincere and earnest. Yes.
0: I I mean, I have done my share of making guesses of what's going to happen on this show. But no matter what we guess, I think we're always wrong. And it's kind of what I love about the show my husband and I have a game. He calls it grammaring, grammaring the plot. And often, you know, we watch a lot of TV. I watch a lot of TV for a living. And I've gotten really good at telling what's going to happen next. You know, something somebody says something and you go, oh, they're going to die. Yeah. And I will say that Succession is the kind of show that is ungrammable.
1: <laughs> really? It's the first ungrammable show? Wow.
0: I don't know if it's the, the first ungrammable show, but I think that's part of its genius. You know, I think it swerves mm-hmm. and it is very, very elusive. And I think it almost intentionally so. It almost probably, you know, is a game to the writer's room just to never know what's going to happen. You know, I've interviewed some of the actors along the way, and I sometimes ask them, you know, what they think is going to happen. And they just say, you know, no no matter what I come up with, the writers are going to have something better and weirder and more profound.
1: And that is so true. And yet I can't help but wonder, you know, make my little predictions and try to grammar the show. And I've kind of, so if I'm going to try to grammar the show, I'll you and your husband, the Roy's think that they exist in this their own little world, right? They're in their 1%, their enclave, their penthouses, and the world is outside them, right? And this episode, we really see the world starting to come in, in terms of the protests, which were so reminiscent of 2020 and the Women's March and, you know, Black Lives Matter and all, you know, all these real things that happened to us real people in the real world that we were a part of. We were, you know, we're the people that are on the ground outside of ATN, right? <laughs> we're not upstairs in the penthouse post-Logan's funeral sipping champagne and talking to the president of the United States. So I would imagine that the outside world increasingly comes in to the Roy's and bursts the Roy's bubble in some profound way. And we see Roman get fully injured. He gets knocked in the face trying to go against the grain. You know, they're trying to go against the grain of the nation. They're going against the grain in the pursuit of craven wealth and power. And maybe it won't blow it up in their face. And that's going to be the lesson that we learn from the series that for this echelon of people, he can't really tear them down from their poles of power. But I do think the outside world is creeping in, is going to come in and burst the Roy's bubble. And that's on a macro sort of emotional landscape, sort of emotional bird's eye view of how I think the series will end. But on a more specific note, it seems like we're headed for like a, boor- a good old-fashioned boardroom showdown, right?
0: I think that seems likely. I think that seems likely. And I, I think what you just said about the world creeping in is really important. I think about going back to that conversation with Robin and Kendall, where she's incredibly upset, and Kendall says, everything's fine. And Rava says, nothing is fine. Mm. It was like in that election episode. What was it? Shiv, uh, you know, Roman says, nothing happens.
1: Things do happen.
0: Things do happen. And that seems like a running theme now. Things do happen. This is real. Yeah. And it's real in terms of the parallels
1: to to our real world. Thinking about you know Logan's funeral, and like sort of, and the protest, the ATN protest. It's like, what's going to happen when Donald Trump dies? When Rupert Murdoch dies? I think people will be in the streets. It's like, you know, it just felt like there's going there's these parallels are so apparent, and it would be silly to discount the effect of the, of the outside world and how that might come in and affect the Roy children. But it does seem like we've got Kendall and sort of Roman on one side right, versus Shiv for control of the company and that they're going to take it to the boardroom and that while Kendall thinks he has the upper hand because he's got Hugo and he's got Hugo's intel and, you know, Mattson doesn't have the numbers, Mattson seems to have struck this deal or has some sort of a relationship, working relationship with Mencken, um, and Shiv's in that bandwagon. So I foresee, I think we're going to go back because boardrooms have always been a huge thing, right? You know, with the no confidence vote and whatnot, I think it comes we come back to the table. I think we come back to what the show was. We've done grief and loss. we've done politics. I think we come back to business with the series finale, the ninety minute series finale. Are you ready for it?
0: I think no matter what happens, it's going to be ugly. I think that the you know the real heart of the show is revealing this absolute ugliness at the heart of mm. capitalism through these incredibly compelling characters. It reminds me a little bit of the way that Breaking Bad, Mm. you know, ended by just hammering home this sort of evil of Walter White. You know, I think that there's going to be an ugliness and it's going to be disquieting. I think no matter what
1: happens. I agree. And I will make a final because Richard and I, we do, while the show is ungrammable, we do like to make predictions, winners and losers. And this is our last time to make a prediction. Go for it. I'm going to say Shiv becomes the American CEO of a Gojo-owned Waystar and her moral compass is completely shattered. It's actually the worst thing that could happen. I think it Shiv beats Kendall even though I said that I'm contradicting myself from earlier in this episode where I said that the arc of the show has been all about Kendall and Kendall sort of becoming his father. I'm going to subvert that narrative and say that uh, Shiv girl bosses all her way all the way to the top.
0: And if that happens it won't be a victory. <laughs>
1: yeah, let's be clear about that. It won't. It won't be a victory.
0: My predictions would be ludicrous. So you know, my <laughs> predictions would be. You know, as I said, like Jerry comes back and rescues Roman, and and because I, I really would like, I'd like to
1: see Jerry win it all. <sighs> I mean, when we That was my. She was my pick from day one. <laughs> she, she was my. She was my pick from day one. And I guess I've counted her out. But we we should never. We shouldn't count Jerry out. Should, we should never end.
0: count Jerry out. And I if if Jerry does not. Make a comeback in the finale. I am still hoping for um, a Jerry spinoff.
1: Ah, that's, I'd watch very compelling stuff. (laughs) Ah, wow, Jordan, I'm so happy that you came and joined us. That was fun. It was so fun. So that's it for this episode of Still Watching. Please send us your questions, your comments, your concerns, your final thoughts, your theories, how you think it's all going to end. Please email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at Christress, C-H-R-I-S-T-R-E-S-S. And you can find me on Twitter
0: at Joy Press.
1: This has been Still Watching from Vanity Fair. Thank you again to Joy Press for co-hosting this week. Our producer is Emily Elias, and we had production help from Peyton Hayes. We had technical assistance from Jake Loomis. Steven Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. We'll be back next week for the finale. Looking forward to seeing you then.
2: It was a dot com pet supply guy who built it. Was
0: he
1: in a bidding war with Stalin and Liberace?
2: Right. <laughs>